irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can find me online through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. From there, you're able to schedule sessions with me in person, on location, via phone, Skype, or FaceTime. You're able to access archived episodes of this show. And there is a link to subscribe to this show via iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. I ask that if you have enjoyed what you've been hearing, that you consider being my patron through my crowdfunding campaign with patreon.com. There is a link on NOLA Therapy. Or you can go to patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir, all one word. My guest today is really interesting, and it's one of the main reasons why I even started my podcast is to learn about new things and read more books and expand my own mind and consciousness and then bring that to you as the listener. I am going to be within moments, Professor Carissa Haugeberg. She is an assistant professor of history in the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. She additionally edits the Newcomb College Institute's Journal for Research on Women and Gender. And Carissa has published a book titled Women Against Abortion, Inside the Largest Moral Reform Movement of the 20th Century. And this book already has been acclaimed by the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books for how she has pulled out of archives resources and information about women that made up the anti-abortion movement starting in the 60s through the 90s. So we're going to find out from Carissa back in her grad school days, going to archives at Duke University and finding a host of information that had never been brought public until now. And we're going to talk about how this anti-abortion movement really began in the late 1960s when individual states began to liberalize their own abortion laws. So welcome, Carissa. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be on your show. I am as well. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm curious where you would like to start with this, with your work and research. It's such a broad topic starting in the 60s through the 90s. Where would you like to begin on taking us on this journey? Uh, maybe your um, listeners might be interested in how a historian comes to find sources about a topic. I could, I could talk about that. Oh, great. Okay, so... Um, when I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa, my one of my advisors, Johanna Schoen, who's now at Rutgers University, um, worked with an archivist, Kelly Wooten, at Duke University to get the records of abortion providers who were retiring in really significant numbers um, in the 
19, late 1990s and early 2000s. And many of these people were the first people who provided legal abortions after Roe v. Wade. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of them had practiced illegally before 1973, um, but they were committed to offering women safe abortion. So again, these all these this first generation of providers was retiring and so they made this effort to go out and try to get them to donate their papers to Duke University to make sure that they weren't just shredded or recycled or lost yes and and while they were processing these papers they were finding all of this documentation about anti-abortion activists and that might seem very strange initially, but the reason why they were getting those records was that it was so commonplace for anti-abortion activists to become so um, violent or intimidating that they needed to have a paper trail to show the death threats that they were getting or to go to the police or go to a district attorney with photographs of people menacing outside of their homes or outside of the doorway, preventing women from entering clinics. They needed to collect all of this evidence in order to have injunctions issued. Um, and so it's uh, strangely enough within the records of abortion providers that I found a lot of information about some of the strategies that anti-abortion activists used um, from in the 1970s to the 1990s. And weren't they similar to anti-war strategies used during the Vietnam era? Yeah, and actually a lot of the first generation of women who were involved in the movement um, were Catholic, um, and um, most of them were white. Um, and they had, in fact, in their teenage years, many of them had been um, engaged in civil rights activism, either directly or um, through church services. They had heard their priests um, condemn racism or um, advocate support for the civil rights movement. Many had also been involved in anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. Um, so, again, many of them initially identified as Democrats. Um, thought of themselves as being progressive liberals and um, at about in the 1960s and 1970s there was a popular theory called um, the seamless garment philosophy yes um, I had that down that I, in my notes to ask you to share yeah. with us yes and that's very much related to this the idea was that life should be protected from conception to death so they thought that it was natural to support um, the anti-abortion movement all the way through um, being opposed to euthanasia. Um, and then everything in between was all about supporting life. Um, so again, they all saw this as being like pretty, in their minds, rooted in a progressive philosophy. Um, and many of them were really disappointed and surprised when their friends from these other progressive movements didn't walk with them into the right. anti-abortion movement. Yeah, you know, in in reading your book and your research, I, I started to think about how the themes of meaning and purpose really came up for me. That abortion mm -hmm. and anti-abortion gave many women a meaning and purpose to their lives that that was either positive or dangerous and and negative. Yeah, that's. I think that's really insightful, um, and and I think it's it's interesting. I just spoke with a group of students about. Um, researching difficult subjects. <laughs> and one of the things that I pointed out was that in approaching some, something so controversial like this, and especially 
um, something that's so divisive like this, yeah. it would be easy to kind of flatten the story. And, and the simple story would be to say, look at these women who um, advocated on behalf of a patriarchal movement. And then lo and behold, they get marginalized and pushed out of positions of leadership. And, you know, there's something satisfying about that story, but there's something a little too simple about that story too. And I think yes, to go too far down that road is to engage in kind of the polarization that we're in generally. And I right. think the point that you've raised, this point about um, visibility and meaning and purpose is actually the more complicated story. And, but I think a more fair story and one that resonated with them. Um, a lot of these women, um, some of them, like, this this was their vocation. This was their job. Um, and it, it was. was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, for them, they got to, um, for working-class Catholic girls from Detroit or Chicago, their attachment to this movement gave them reason to travel um, to see the United States. They, they forged friendships across the United States. They were trading books and literature. Um, so it was um, intellectually stimulating for them. Um, they were valued for their work. Um, so, I mean, it, one can see, I mean, if you're looking, um, you know, you may not agree with them, you may not, but, but nevertheless, you can be sympathetic for, for what they found attractive about this work. Yes, and that became really apparent to me, reading about the individuals you highlight in your book, like Shelley Shannon and Marjorie Mecklenburg and... The, the physician, the first African-American woman to graduate from Harvard, Dr. Yes. Mildred Jefferson. It became apparent to me how these women found something that gave them meaning and purpose and visibility and freedom from just being at home running a household. So I wonder if you can speak, continue to speak to us about, about this. Yeah. Well, there's something kind of interesting, too, because this is all happening against the backdrop of a of a, an invigorated feminist movement of the 1960s and 1970s that makes it more possible for women to be politicians or, you know, get these kind of like non-traditional roles for women and for w women when they do take those roles, not having to necessarily um, be self-conscious about that work. Um, and so um, Mildred, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Marjorie Mecklenburg. Yeah, she's yeah. a great example of that. She was um, from Minnesota. She was a high school home economics teacher. Uh, she was married to a physician. Um, he was the one who first became involved in the anti-abortion movement, and then she got involved too. And she was really dynamic at what she did. She turned the Right to Life chapter in Minnesota called Minnesota Citizens Concerned for Life, she turned it into one of the largest chapters in the nation. And she did it by sponsoring polka dances and um, selling pies and doing things that were kind of social. Yes. Um, and over time, she like became one of the first um, presidents of the National Right to Life Committee. And by the early 1980s, she was given an administrative post in the Reagan administration. Um, right. And so, like, that's kind of an unimaginable story when we think about our stereotype of a Midwestern home ec teacher. Um, so, so absolutely, like, that possibility of, of gaining that high of a post in the government, um, really, I mean, it, it, and, I, and I, I suspect she would have also given credit to the feminist movement for making that possible. Like, that wasn't, there wasn't such an inherent tension like we would have now. And what I also found, yes, right. 
what what I also found inter- interesting about Marjorie Mecklenburg is that she early on in her career supported birth control, which is really obviously not what the Catholic Church as a doctrine was teaching. But then didn't she later on become more conservative and kind of renege yeah, that on was that? One of, yeah, that was one of the surprising um, aspects of my research was to see kind of the diversity of thought that was there in the 1960s and 1970s within the movement, it wasn't nearly as rigid and, you know, hard line as it is today. So yes, um, Marjorie Mecklenburg said something that it, you hear a lot of pro-choice people saying today, which is, you know, if you give people birth control, they won't need the abortion. So the best way to prevent abortion is to offer women the ability to have birth control. Um, so she would say things like that. Um, uh, and there was another person, um, Julie Lesh, who was a Catholic activist. She said, you know, what we need to do is have better welfare benefits for people. That if women could afford to have children, they wouldn't feel the pressure to turn to abortion, especially if they could be single moms. Right. Um, and so again, she, she came very close to, you know, not condemning women for having premarital sex. Um, so like, um, these handful of women who are getting these leadership posts, either in the grassroots or in the more traditional pro-life movement, um, were offering these kind of alternative voices and how, how interesting you, the question is what did the anti-abortion movement lose when they lost this ability to kind of have a more complicated argument line of arguments available to them. Mm-hmm. And, and how would you answer that? Well, I mean, this is, I think, it's hard to say because in many regards, I I think the anti-abortion movement has been remarkably effective. And that's how they could counter me is by saying, well, we became more disciplined and we became more hard line and it hasn't really hurt us. We've effectively shut down most abortion clinics. Um, so, so they are a disciplined movement. Um, but nevertheless, and one of the arguments that I make in my book is that those women who were alternative voices in the 60s and, and the ways in which women really stood apart from most men in the movement in the 60s and 70s is that they very early on started to adopt a pro-woman policy. So they wanted to say that the anti-abortion movement helps women. Um, right. Men wanted to talk about protection of the fetus, that um, abortion is killing. Um, they would um, produce false documentaries that purported that fetuses scream during abortions, which is not true, um, or that fetuses feel pain at the very early stages of a pregnancy. And and these these women in the anti-abortion movement figured out very quickly that the American public was very uncomfortable by that kind of propaganda. And also that that set up an inherent tension between women being potentially evil people out to kill their fetuses and a sweet, innocent fetus. And like, that's just, that's an uncomfortable dynamic for people to have to engage of women being, you know, the pariah and the, and the, the fetus being the, you know, sweet, um, pure vessel. Right. Um, and so, these women in the anti-abortion movement were like, we need to change the narrative and we need to reach out to the women who are considering abortion and really make her seem sympathetic and like we're out to help her. And that way the anti-abortion movement wouldn't be forcing Americans to confront obviously complicated dynamics. 
um, they still, from my perspective, they still are complicated dynamics, but it's yeah. not quite as gru- gruesome. Um, well, that, and so, go ahead. No, you first, and then I'll, I'll add on. Okay, so so my only point is like here, the, like the that strategy of really foregrounding women and making it seem as though they're helping women has been probably the most resilient and effective strategy the anti-abortion movement ever adopted. And they didn't, again, the anti-abortion movement initially kind of ignored those women who were making that argument and didn't come around to embracing that strategy until after violence in the movement really proliferated and the American public started to sour on the anti-abortion movement. This was in the 1980s. So they had to kind of clear the deck and come up with a new strategy because their fetus-centered strategy was basically inspiring a bunch of people to start shooting doctors and blowing up clinics. And so they went back to those women who'd been advocating that position since the 60s and then wholesale adopted it. And ever since, that's been very successful. Um, courts will adopt their reasoning. Um, and and so, so again... Perhaps, you know, maybe I will revise my earlier assessment and say maybe the anti-abortion movement did lose more by not listening to those women because it it does seem that their strategies were pretty shrewd. Yes. And and what you're saying echoes what I was thinking, that I think the anti-abortion movement became very consolidated and hard to penetrate when the focus shifted from a purely fetus-centered approach to the propaganda around the health of women with things like post-abortion syndrome and just the, the inaccurate information, the photos and images that were so gory, that were enhanced by dyes. And it reminded me of, of when I've been to Israel twice and the museums around the Holocaust and seeing the propaganda that was put out, false propaganda about Jews being less intelligent and a menace to society. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's when the anti-abortion movement started to gain a lot of power and when they convoluted the scientific information to put out there what they wanted it to reflect because who is going to be able to decipher a scientific document. So, and and you talk about that in in your book about anecdotal claims versus evidence-based claims. Absolutely. And, you know, like this is in the news so much today. What do we do about the problem of fake news? Um, And what's so disturbing about that is how very old this story is. Um, Even in in the United States, we know that um, the tobacco industry put out a lot of propaganda that looked very scientific to claim that cigarettes did not cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, similar things have been done with chemical companies um, um, to make it seem as though um, things that cause their carcinogens are really safe when they are not. Um, and so the anti-abortion movement engaged in this practice. and it was very difficult for researchers to uncover because the place where a lot of this was being disseminated were in crisis pregnancy centers. And your listeners are probably familiar with these. There are more of them than there are abortion clinics nationwide. Um, They're commonly in strip malls. They're often located nearby um, legitimate abortion practices. Um, And they often have names like Women's Health Center. Um, And if you ever are driving and you see a billboard and says, you know, are you pregnant and in crisis, we will help you. And they're often then connected by phone to one of these 
crisis pregnancy centers. And it was in these centers, which were almost totally started by women and certainly almost totally staffed by women, that um, they began to disseminate brochures and pamphlets um, that were full of all sorts of stories that look like medical information, often replete with footnotes. Um, names of journals that looked like legitimate medical journals. Wow. Um, often written by physicians. But then when you go and do the research of these physicians, they were often like general practitioners from the middle of nowhere, Kansas, or, you know, they weren't OBGYNs. They weren't um, associated with research universities. So they were, they, they happened to be physicians and they may have been wonderful general practice physicians or wonderful OBGYNs, but they weren't research based. Um, and so that makes the claims that they present very dubious. Um, like one has to be very careful. So for example, I'm a historian of the United States. If I were to make a historical claim about China, it right. would be very frightening because I could say, well, <laughs> I am a historian, but you know, you have to look a little bit deeper. I'm not an expert on China. And that's, that's very, that's a metaphor that's similar to what these, these physicians were doing. They were using their credentials as a medical doctor to make claims that they were really out of their league to make. They were um, out of their depth. Um, and so very early on, they started releasing these, again, very official looking reports and publishing them in their own anti-abortion physician journals that were lambasted by, by legitimate organized medicine. But they were reporting things about how abortion causes um, women to be permanently depressed or anxious. Um, they made um, one of the most pernicious myths has been that abortion causes breast cancer. And, and mm. your readers or your listeners might be interested to know that this is actually the story. Um, there's some evidence that suggests that women who never have a child um, might be at a slightly elevated risk for developing breast cancer. And then they, there's some speculation that maybe the hormonal changes that a woman goes through during pregnancy might somehow set a woman up later on to, to be at less risk for abort for breast cancer. So again, the experience of never being, never having a pregnancy might make a woman more susceptible to breast cancer. That is not the same as a woman who gets an abortion <laughs> is at a high risk of getting or a higher risk of getting abortion or getting breast cancer. Yeah. They're, they're, they're manipulating this finding. And so again, and one thing too, most women who get abortions at some point have a pregnancy, either they've had children before or they have children afterwards. So in fact, most women who have abortions are probably at relatively low risks, you know, as far as the role that the abortion played. I mean, it's, played. it's nothing. Yes, um, and so um, so that myth has been pernicious, but it's again it's been so effective. And for just a lay person who encounters this, it's really hard to figure out that it's not legitimate. Um, so so that it's it's a very sinister but effective dimension. And just to give you a sense of how effective it has been, um, there was a pretty famous Supreme Court case in two thousand nine called okay. Gonzalez v. Carhartt. And that's the one that pretty famously upheld the ban on a particular procedure that, 
that's done in late term pregnancies. It's almost never done. Women rarely have third trimester abortions. Um, but um, um, this one particular procedure had been banned by Congress in 2003. It's called the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, 2003. And okay. this was litigated for years. So it took six years from the time that Congress passed this act to the time that the Supreme Court decided whether it was constitutional. And ultimately, the Supreme Court, in a majority opinion, decided that it was constitutional. So it's still to this day illegal, or states can make it illegal to for physicians to perform this one type of third trimester abortion. Okay. But what's really dis- disappointing to a lot of scholars, legal scholars, is that Justice Kennedy, um, who most famously has been pretty supportive. He's written a lot of the gay marriage cases. He's always supportive of gay marriage. In his decision, he wrote, while there's no evidence to prove that it's so, it seems reasonable to assert that women might come to regret their decision. So he basically took hook, line, and sinker, this anti-abortion argument that women regret, that women have psychological trauma because they have abortions. And the only thing he cited was an anti-abortion um, brief signed by a bunch of these anti-abortion physicians that are not recognized by the American Medical Association or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So this propaganda has made it all the way into Supreme Court decisions. Um, so, so we need to take this very seriously. And, and again, this false news thing has been around for a long time. It has. And, and I think the examples you're giving speak to the power of the psychology of advertising, that there was mm-hmm. a delay. There was a time delay when these articles were published by doctors practicing outside of their scope, giving false information. It's out there. People are reading it. They're reacting to it. And there's a time delay before the doctors can put out the truth about things. And it's still hard. I think once you read something jarring, that's gruesome, that's disturbing, it can be hard to believe. Okay, well, that's not really true. This is the truth. We, we see it in such small things, like even on Facebook in the last few days. There have been posts I've seen of people saying, go to your privacy settings, put in something under blocking and all these names come up of people monitoring your account. And then when I research that, that's that's fake. That's a false piece of information. Mm-hmm. But it's, it can still be hard to trust. OK, that's fake because that imprint is already in your psychology. You have an emotional reaction to something that that pairs that makes it a stronger memory imprint when there's an emotional release and attachment to a piece of information it's harder to let go of it so i can only imagine reading things about abortion with gruesome images you know how do you let go of that how do you shift and believe okay well that's not really true i I think it'd be so challenging so there was a lot of damage done by by that absolutely and i think you're you are also getting at a really um, larger philosophical question that um, historians grapple with. And that's how very driven, and, and your listeners are going to be more expert at this than I am, is that how driven humans are by the power of emotion. That we're actually, mm-hmm. even the most, those of us who like to think of ourselves as incredibly rational actors are in fact much more vulnerable um, to being persuaded by the emotional appeal of what we read. 
Um, and, and it's interesting, um, this, in December, I was in the Netherlands and someone was asking me about the appeal of, of Donald Trump. And I, I just speculated that one of the things that I thought made him appealing to a lot of people is that he speaks in sentences, whereas someone like Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, they speak in paragraphs. Mm. And, and there's something sometimes appealing in this very fast-paced you know, world that we live in where like, we want things really quickly. We're overwhelmed with data. We're overwhelmed with stimulus. And to have like something that's very powerful, like and and again with the anti-abortion movement, to say it is my desire to save babies. Who doesn't love babies? That's great. Right. That's a you know a sentence or two, and it's very emotionally appealing. I mean, who's going to deny that? Right? Who wants to say right. they don't love babies? Um, yeah. Whereas the more complicated and nuanced view takes paragraphs. It's you know you have to I can trot out evidence that shows that. Uh, making abortion illegal does not reduce the demand for abortion. So no, there's, there's no correlation there. And that, in fact, it becomes more dangerous and that we see both women and fetuses die in higher numbers. Um, but again, by the time I'm done explaining <laughs> this story, I've probably lost the attention of a lot of people. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and and you know so it's it's a it's a it's a it's a more adult story to tell. <laughs> it's a longer it story to tell, and it's harder. I, I think it's getting harder all the time to to convince people to stick with you and to pay attention. For for the long but what's haul. interesting though yeah. is the the resurgence of podcasts um, and even internet radio. Isn't it fascinating that at this very moment there's a resurgence in the intimacy of these kinds of shows like yours? that do have long form discussions about these issues. So, I mean, I think there still maybe is a craving for this, um, but I think there is maybe too. we're just having, we're having to find new ways um, and be more creative. And that's maybe part of the enterprise that you're engaged in and why people are finding shows like yours so appealing. I think you're right about that. And, you know, as you've been speaking a few moments ago, uh, what came to mind as well, I'm sure you've, thought about this and said it is that the decision to have an abortion is such a challenging decision. I don't believe there's any woman that is jumping for joy to have to make that decision mm -hmm. and say yes to an abortion. And so I think it is such a complex issue. And and hearing your interview on the station talking about the protest in Charlotte and just how a woman is coming to an abortion clinic to have this procedure that certainly was not an easy decision to make. And they're being threatened. There's just a violent environment with all the protesters. I wondered if you could talk to us about some of what's happening today in our country around the abortion protests. Yeah, so there's um, a big um, speculation among a lot of people that one of the unintended consequences of making abortions be standalone clinics. So, um, yeah. for example, if you go to um, like a plastic surgeon, they might be by themselves in a standalone facility or they could be paired with a few like next to a podiatrist. Um, or if you need to go for, an, uh, let's say you have an ear infection, you'll probably go to a big building in which it's a multi-specialty clinic. 
And one of the reasons why abortion clinics peeled away from traditional hospitals um, or multi-specialty clinics initially was that they wanted to kind of um, get away from this more traditional patriarchal medicine um, that had been pretty unfriendly to women. Gynecologists historically, like they were pretty nasty to women, often very rude to them. So a lot of women wanted to um, form their own clinics that were um, that had counseling services where women felt comfortable coming in, um, where the staff was more democratic. Um, and so, again, this impulse to make them stand alone and different and actually kind of be more like houses. And you, you'll notice this, like many women's clinics, both those that perform abortions and those that do not, are a little more ramshackle. They tend to be in residential zones. Yes. Um, but, but one of the unintended consequences of that is that they are now so vulnerable to violence. Um, and a question that I think we need to ask is, if it were 60-year-old men on their way to the podiatrist who were being harassed and menaced and their license plate numbers were being written down and their families were being called to let them know that they were going to the podiatrist, I don't think as a country we would stand for that. We would say that's mm -hmm. terroristic. You're terrorizing people. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that we've been pretty, as a country, pretty okay or pretty unconcerned about the fact that young women um, who are disenfranchised, who are made to feel embarrassed about what they're doing, um, because abortion is wrapped up in questions about sex, um, that we've been okay with them being the targets of this violence for the past 40 years and this harassment. Um, and, the, and these clinics, they have to shoulder the costs of security um, by themselves. Yes. Um, so, and also they have a hard time finding people willing to rent to them. Um, they have to get insurance um, and they're so vulnerable to having their buildings set on fire that a lot of um, places will not insure them. So there are all these hurdles that are very unique to abortion providers that other types of physicians don't face. I thought of that, that if, so I was going to ask you, and I think you're answering it, what influences do we see left upon the U.S.? Um, and I, I think you're answering that with the peeling away from larger clinics and hospitals have left abortion providers and their facilities so vulnerable to the kinds of protests and violence and harassment that, that we've seen from the 80s onward. Is there, mm -hmm. is there like proposed solutions? I mean, I know at some clinics there are volunteers that will escort patients from their car to the door. It's just so traumatic. On top of an experience, it's already so challenging. And I, I, I'm kind of, I'm pessimistic about this because, um, so like, for example, in the, go ahead. Oh, no, that was just okay. some static. Okay. Okay. So in the UK, um, abortions are often performed in hospitals. They are covered by the national health insurance system. Um, and as a consequence, they're treated like any other kind of medical procedure. So, um, in most places in the world, if you have a medical procedure that like legitimately is at more dangerous and riskier, then the consensus is, oh, there should be more regulations on that procedure because it's trickier, it has a higher rate of complications, it's more dangerous. Well, in the United States, 
because we've separated abortion from every other kind of care, um, it's kind of made it okay for politicians to legislate it differently. They've singled it out. Um, so in most states um, now, there are sometimes up to a thousand special regulations about who can perform abortions, where they can be, how large the hallways have to be in the clinic, um, what kind of information women must be told, um, waiting periods between the time you say you want the procedure and when you can get it. Um, And even, and what, and again, it's not based on science. It's not because abortion is more dangerous than other procedures. In fact, the complication, it's, be safe, one of the safest surgical procedures and the most commonplace surgical procedures performed in the United States. So again, it's it's more much more dangerous to have your appendix removed, for example. Yes. But there are a fraction of the number of regulations on other kinds on dentistry, on on any number of things that are actually um, at a greater risk of harming you than abortion. Wow. Um, so. Because of this, because abortion has been so stigmatized and treated as though it is dangerous. So, like, again, if you're just a passive observer, I wouldn't blame you if you think that abortion is a dangerous procedure. Because it, if you look at the number of regulations, it looks like it must be. Yes. Um, so because of all of this, hospitals are becoming more and more reluctant to even perform those late-term ones that are usually performed because something is drastically wrong. There is something horribly wrong with the woman or with the fetus. Um, historically, hospitals have stepped in and, and offered to perform them because those are a little more complicated surgical procedures. They're ones that standalone clinics are often not suited to perform. Okay. So traditionally, hospitals have performed them kind of quietly. Um, and there's kind of been a consensus like these are medically needed abortions. Well, now even hospitals are trying to distance themselves from that. So fewer and fewer hospitals are even performing those medically necessary ones. Um, and that's, that should frighten all women, whether you're pro-choice or anti-abortion, because those are abortions that no one ever anticipates getting. Right. Um, those are usually wanted pregnancies and something's gone very terribly wrong. Yes. This this makes me want to ask you, I'm curious what information throughout your research, um, this book took a number of years to write, isn't, is that correct? Yes, it did, yep. And, and your bibliography shows that. Your bibliography is so extensive and just amazing. And I, I learned so much. And I was curious, what did you find surprising or what were some of those moments for you that was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. In, in your journey in writing this book? Um, so I think for me, um, oh, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Like, so one of, I think the interesting things was just like how old the movement was. I had always just kind of assumed that it had sprung up in the 1980s. And I didn't really stop to think about how it had always been there since the 1960s. And then, also, although violence proliferated in the 80s, and we're all kind of familiar with that, like I, you might remember turning into the nightly news and seeing Operation Rescue with these mass demonstrations in Kansas where tens of thousands of people would turn out. Um, yes. Like that's really the image kind of seared in our brains. Like that's when the movement became big. 
And one of the things that, that I found so fascinating is that in the late 19, or I'm sorry, 1963, there was a woman in Arizona. She hosted a popular children's um, television show. It was kind of like Mr. Rogers, but it was this local public access show in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And she was married, um, had children, wanted another child. And she had taken a sleep aid that her husband had brought back with, uh, with, from a trip to London. And she didn't know it, but it was thalidomide, um, which causes birth defects, profound birth defects. Uh, and, and she didn't know it. And again, it, and the news was released and she ran to her, her kitchen counter or to her um, medicine cabinet and, and picked up the pill bottle and realized she'd taken this drug that had just been announced that causes birth defects. So she was able to petition for an abortion and it became a really complicated story. But what happened, what, what shocked me was that she got death threats that were so specific um, against her family, against their family's dog. These death threats named their dog. So again, wow. so specific that the FBI took to protecting the family for a time. And this was 1963. Wow, um, and those are those are tactics that became really common in the '80s and '90s, and so it surprised me just how quickly things escalated right away. So, like as states were starting to liberalize abortion, as people were starting to talk about it out loud, almost immediately there was this kind of off the chains reaction. And and that's where I started to to see how this movement really was about meaning and purpose and how we can choose our meaning and purpose to be something positive or negative and just the insidiousness of knowing even the, the pet's name and the death threats and how people really attach. Because I think, again, there's that emotional charge along with mm-hmm. an activity with something you're engaging in that makes it almost addictive. And and I got the flavor that say for Shelley Shannon and these other anti-abortion activists, that there was an addictive quality to what they were doing with the high of it. That was just a, a brain chemistry component that's hard to break. It's hard to change when you're in that place, mentally, emotionally, et cetera. Absolutely. And, and again, this is a question that your audience, I think, would be really adept to respond to. And that's that there's, there's some thinking among some scholars that there needs to be more investigation of kind of the manipulation of people who are emotionally and psychologically fragile. Yes. Um, so some of the architects of some of these campaigns are really shrewd and smart people who just happen to never be around when a bomb is detonated or a gun is fired. But nevertheless, they cultivate among a group of people who I think are pretty fragile, this belief that if they, if they do these acts, if they blow up the clinic, if they shoot the doctor, they will be doing that. They'll, they'll have a martyr like status for saving a baby, for saving a fetus. And there's something that's very appealing in that act, that righteousness, when you are not valued or when you, when you feel like you're at society's margins. And I think the, the thread that needs to be interrogated and investigated is the ways in which they're being used and manipulated by people who are shrewder um, 
Yes, there's a very sad strand, I think, that that weaves throughout this. And it's kind of America's unwillingness to really take seriously people who are emotionally and psychologically fragile. Yes. And and even that reminds me when you when you wrote about Shelley Shannon and one of her incarcerations, meeting a gentleman that I think she had a relationship with, Scott Redder. Scott Roeder, yes. And and convincing him to actually kill Dr. Tiller, who she had shot his arms. Can you tell us a bit about that story? Sure. Just how her power yeah, so, to persuade. Yeah, so Shelly Shannon, herself an emotionally fragile person um, who went on this like very long spree committing arsons up and down California and um, Nevada, finally culminating in front of Dr. Tiller's Wichita, Kansas clinic in the early 1990s. And she shot him in both arms. She had wanted to kill him. And she, she wrote that she confessed that to the police. Um, and she was unsuccessful. He went to work the very next day. Um, wow. so he had casts on his arms, but he was like, he wanted to make a statement that he was not going to be bullied or intimidated. And so she um, was um, convicted of attempted murder and then began this pen pal friendship with Scott Roeder, who was a similarly very disconnected um, man. He was recently divorced. Um, there is some speculation that he was mentally ill. Um, and they um, began this pen pal relationship. He would visit her in prison and in one letter to him, she wrote, that she wanted him to finish the job that she could, did not. Um, and, and then um, in 2006, I believe it was, um, he, um, he had been stalking Dr. Tiller at his church for, for many years, and he showed up one day and, and, and killed him. Right. So, yeah, just that, that power of persuasion and, and having influence over others that are, are swayed in whatever direction to have a meaning and purpose. Yep. And to have a friendship, um, which was so yes. important to him. Yep. Right. Being marginalized and, and not having connection with others in that way. Yep. So I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. I was curious where, how, how it's been for you as this book has been published and the interviews you're doing, where you see it going and, and kind of what's next for you, just how this experience has been now that it's finally out and released and available. Well, first of all, it's an absolute relief to have it out <laughs> and to have it done. Um, yes. but, um, but it's been like the conversations have been so interesting and it's been really fun for me to rethink some of my assumptions about people and about the movement. Um, I've been interviewed by people who are um, very conservative, who themselves are anti-abortion. And we've had, I think, really meaningful and interesting conversations and I would like to think that this is one thing that academics who approach this topic can maybe add to this conversation that has gotten so polemical and so polarized that it's almost like if, if, people, if your listeners are like me, that you just want to tune out. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to think that I... Oh, do, is this just echoing? Just static, yes. Okay, okay, okay. So I'd like to think um, that this book is helping us to have new conversations and new ways of thinking about a topic that has gotten so tired um, and that, that makes us so tired. So I, I, there's still, I think, a, a, a great urgency to this topic because abortion is becoming 
ever more under assault and ever closer to being an impossibility for for most women in the United States. So how do we keep people engaged and energized in this issue? And I think one of the secrets is to um, keep having new conversations and to inject moments of humanity into both sides to see that there are human beings who are motivated by um, real feelings of either being marginalized or wanting to have meaning or purpose to their lives. Um, and to um, to really appreciate that, I think, makes us all a little bit more thoughtful um, and hopefully a little more creative in the way that we approach people and complicated topics. And you present so much in the book about facts, not in a pro either way, so to speak, just the facts about the history and where this came from and where we are, which I think makes it easy for either side to be able to learn from and appreciate and have those new conversations that you've been able to have as you've spoken about your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and I think especially with a topic like this, it's important that you have sources and evidence yes. um, to sustain the points that you make, especially because part of my charge is that people have misused information and misused sources. So it makes it all the more important um, for me to cite you know, peer-reviewed sources and, and often multiple sources that have come to similar conclusions. Yeah. That's why I mentioned earlier just how impressive your bibliography is. When listeners buy this <laughs> book, you. please turn to the back. It's potentially even 50 pages of resources. I'm so impressed. It shows the depth and reach and, and time that you've put into this work. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. You're welcome. So how can listeners buy this book and be in touch with you if they wanted to interview you, for example? Okay. So the book is called Women Against Abortion Inside the Largest Moral Reform Movement of the 20th Century. Um, It's available on Amazon.com or they can go to the University of Illinois Press. Um, and my name is Carissa Haugeberg. Um, and also, if they were to just Google Carissa Haugeberg Tulane, they would find my faculty page. So my email address is there. Um, it's K-H-A-U-G-E-B-E at Tulane, T-U-L-A-N-E dot E-D-U. And you're on Twitter as well. What is your Twitter? Yes. My handle is She's a Reader One, the number one. And this show will be on a link on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and also at the LA Talk Radio site. There will be a link to be able to purchase this book at the sources that you've already mentioned. Oh, that's marvelous. Thank you. You're welcome. Carissa, thank you for being with me today. It was one of my just favorite talks. So enlightening for me. I really appreciate you and your work. Well, thank you. I had a lot of fun, too. This was, this was a great conversation. Thank you, Lisa. You're very welcome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes our show for today. Please join in next week, same time. I hope everyone has a good week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy. 